You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, MD, Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Wit, Pablo, Nikki, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we introduced several early players in the Salem Witch Trials. Samuel Paris, for example, the Salem Village Minister. His daughter and his niece, Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, who were afflicted by witchcraft. Betty and Abigail, along with two other girls, Anne Putnam Jr. and Elizabeth Hubbard, accused the first three women in Salem of witchcraft. Sarah Good was a beggar, uh, a vagrant. She had a five-year-old daughter named Dorothy Good, and she had either an infant girl named Mercy or was currently carrying Mercy. Sarah Osborne, on the other hand, was a wealthy landowner, but both were arrested, questioned, and imprisoned by Salem magistrates John Hawthorne and John Corwin. That's where we left off, and that could have been that. A nice, tidy little witch trial that cleaned up an undesirable and a couple of lingering court cases. What no one counted on here, what really no one gave much thought to, was the girl's nurse, a slave in the Paris household who had also been accused named Tituba. She was going to change everything. This is episode 186 the rules of witchcraft. On 7th March, 1692, the two Salem magistrates marched out to the Paris household to serve a warrant for Tituba's arrest. When they got there, Tituba was already in rough shape. In the days following the girl's accusation, Minister Paris had taken to beating and interrogating his slave to force a confession out of her, you know, the right confession. As with So many victims of abuse, Tituba was going to stick to her story, no matter what. The magistrates brought Tituba before a packed mob at the meeting house there in Salem Village. Nobody in town had ever seen her in this state before. Black eye, split lip, fearful and crying. Normally, she was a jolly character. John Hawthorne opened up with the same questions he'd poised to Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. Why do you hurt these children? He asked. I no hurt them at all, she replied. Who was it then who tortured the girls? The devil, for all I know, she told the court. Then, to the delight and terror of all assembled, Tituba began to describe him. A tall, white-haired Boston man in a dark serge coat. He led a coven of witches, including Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, and two others that Tituba did not know. The witches loomed and laughed and played with their familiars, while the white-haired man ordered Tichiba to hurt the girls in the Paris household to pinch and prod and poke them in the night. Tichuba, who we should remember here was not accustomed to defying well-dressed white-haired white men, she told her assailant, I would not hurt Betty, I love Betty. The tall man, though, produced two animals. A large, black dog which is a symbol of death that would have been familiar to everyone at the hearing, and a bright yellow bird. Tituba could have her choice. She could choose the attentions of the hellhound or this blossom of light and color. Again, Tituba refused. The witches, led by Sarah Good, 
flew at her. They dragged her to the hearth and burned her. They screeched at her and tormented her. Tituba said, quote, Then they haul me to pinch Betty and next Abigail. She had been bested. Over the following days, Tituba was forced to expand her net. The witches dragged her off on broomsticks. They were flying here to torment Elizabeth Hubbard and Anne Putnam. Tituba's story grew in the telling. Stacy Schiff writes in The Witches, quote, Lifting liberally from the Puritan playbook in supersaturated 3D, she introduced a full malevolent cast, their animal accomplices, their various superpowers. She was masterful and gloriously persuasive. Here, Tichiba made clear she must have been the life of the corn-pounding, pea-shelling Paris kitchen. Her tale grew more intricate as she warmed to it. What she reported was vivid and sensational, lurid and harebrained. While earlier the girls had violently twisted and screeched, now none flexed a muscle or emitted a sound. End quote. Marion Starkey writes in The Devil in Massachusetts, quote, She exercised the same spell over the people of Salem Village and even over the magistrates that she had once exercised over a pack of silly girls. All they wanted of her was what the girls had wanted. And by that she means a colorful diversion, a good story. Starkey continues, quote, And Tituba was the one who gave it to them. Tituba, for three days, told Salem Village exactly what it wanted to hear. End quote. This confession was the backbone upon which the rest of the Salem witch trials would be built. It really defined what was to come. The question is, though, why did Tituba confess? And it's not a question we can really ever answer without Tituba's thoughts on the matter, but there are a ton of theories out there. They range from the unbelievably racist to the ludicrous to the more mundane and believable modern theories. People at the time would tell you that Tichibu was indeed a witch or a voodoo practitioner. Starkey tells us that it was a rare moment of power for a dark-skinned woman over powerful white men. And that's true, but it doesn't exactly explain things. Modern thinkers, and a few in the past, will point out that if you were to confess and appeared to repent before the court, the Puritan legal system was likely to show you mercy. You might live, you might even re-enter society. On the other hand, if you denied your guilt, you were much more likely to be convicted and executed. Tituba here was attempting to save her own skin. And to her credit, she did. Tituba was going to make it out of all of this alive. But her testimony did get people killed. They had a, a full-throated, full-throttle confession now, and that's rare. It was Tichuba's confession that, instead of bringing the whole affair to a close, spurred it on. The magistrates and the adolescent accusers in Salem were just getting started. The next to come forward was Mary Warren. She was 18 years old and a maid in the household of a local man named John Proctor. If you've seen The Crucible, you've heard of Mary Warren and John Proctor. The real John Proctor, though, was a bit different than Arthur Miller's version. He was a gruff, 60-year-old, no-nonsense, straight-shooting tavern owner. He didn't have time for this kind of nonsense in his household or his community. When his maid, Mary Warren, came forward with accusations and symptoms similar to the other girls, John Proctor put her to work at the spinning wheel. He threatened to spank her, and if she stopped work, he threatened to beat her. Harsh? Yeah, maybe, but Mary Warren didn't have any more fits that day, or for days to come. We know all this because, well, Mary Warren complained about it, but more directly because John Proctor told his neighbor about it. He declared that Mary Warren and indeed all of the girls were liars. He said that if they were not stopped, they would see the whole town accused and half the town hanged. He said that if anyone were hanged for this nonsense, those girls would be guilty of murder. Discipline was what they needed. And, well, he does kind of have a point there. I mean, 
Witchcraft isn't real, and these girls were lying. But, as we will see, there's... Well, there's more to it than that. It's a lot more complicated. After Mary Warren came Mercy Lewis. She was 16 years old in 1692, and her story is worth a closer look. Mercy Lewis was born in Falmouth, Maine, at the height of King Philip's War. Her mother and father, and some of her siblings, were killed in a raid by the Wabanaki. However, her grandparents were still alive. They took her in. And then in 1683, Falmouth, Maine welcomed a new minister named George Burroughs. Burroughs had previously, only a few months earlier, been the minister to Salem Village. Salem Village had a bad habit of refusing to pay their ministers. Burroughs, as minister, had been forced to take a loan out from Thomas Putnam, and Putnam's father. When he couldn't pay it back because they wouldn't pay him a wage, Thomas Putnam almost had George Burroughs arrested, so the minister skipped town and fled to Falmouth. George Burroughs ministered to the people of Falmouth, Maine for several years. Both he and Mercy Lewis were still there in Falmouth when a disgraced Royal Navy captain named Thomas Pound arrived off the coast. When he seduced dozens of their militiamen from the fort to join him in a life of freedom and piracy. Following this seduction, the Wabanaki attacked the weakened Fort Loyal yet again, and they massacred at least dozens, maybe as many as hundreds, of people there in Falmouth. Mercy Lewis lost the last of the family she had left, her grandparents, her aunt and uncle, her siblings. But she survived. Minister Burroughs gathered as many people as he could, got them on board a ship, and took them out to an island in the bay. They stayed there, surviving on fish and berries, until a passing privateer rescued them. Minister Burroughs, being the kind-hearted man he was, took Mercy Lewis in. She was going to live in his household alongside his wife and daughters. And it's here that we need to discuss something uncomfortable. If topics like sexual assault, especially that involving children, is something you'd rather not hear about, I would skip forward about five minutes. This isn't something I wanted to talk about at all. But the physical and sexual abuse of girls and young women in New England was a pervasive problem at the time. It almost certainly played a role in the Salem Witch Trials. I mentioned last time that, much like Mercy Lewis, there was this generation of orphans, thanks to the years of war with the French and Wabanaki. Many of those children were sent to live with prominent families in the community. The girls among them, almost to a person, served as maids. Much has been made of the girls' lack of fathers, and the desire for positive male attention of any sort. I don't like that notion personally. It smacks of victim-blaming to me. Stacy Schiff, though, writes, quote, Servant girls fended off groping hands and unwanted embraces from lascivious swineherds, from the men of the house, and from visitors to the house, often at appallingly early ages. Isolated, semi-orphaned, they seldom knew someone to whom they could appeal to wield pitchforks on their behalf. The daughters of one Salem magistrate, the elder of whom was six, were for two years routinely sexually abused by their master. Removed to the home of an upstanding church member, they were molested all over again before the elder girl had turned ten. End quote. Now there Schiff is talking about a policy prominent in New England at the time through which girls were sent to live with neighboring families, often in other towns. The idea is that they would learn propriety much better from a family who didn't coddle them as their mother and father would have. It was also a bit of training for girls who would eventually have to marry and leave town and be strangers in a new environment. 
this was their first taste of that. But it also applies, obviously, to many of these orphaned maidservants. And think about this. If a girl in that situation did find justice, and it did happen, but if she did, and her adopted patriarch was sent to jail, that girl would be out of a home. And who's going to take her in? Somebody, it did happen on occasion, but just as likely she might be branded as a whore, as, you know, one of those girls. She might be relegated to the fringes of society not unlike Sarah Good had been. All of this was a tragedy. And it's a tragedy through which Mercy Lewis very probably lived. Minister George Burroughs was a bad man. He beat his wife. All of his wives, in fact. So many of them mysteriously went missing that he had to marry several times. He convinced at least one of those wives that when he was away, he could hear her thoughts and every word she said. And when he returned home, displeased at some of those thoughts and feelings, he beat her. His daughters hated him. They cited in court more than once with different stepmothers against their father because his actions were so egregious. That's really uncommon, especially at the time when the evil stepmother was becoming such a trope. And it's worth noting, as we're talking about his physical abuse, that George Burroughs was immensely strong. He wasn't a large man. He was even at one point called puny. But his feats of strength were things of legend. Once, and many larger men actually saw this occur, George Burroughs fired a huge musket, far too large for even some of the men there to pick up. He fired it with one hand. He was seen picking up and carrying barrels of molasses on his own that normally required two men. In normal times, this was a blessing. Less so for the women of his household. George Burroughs, too, abused Mercy Lewis. We know that he beat her. The language of that testimony is prim and puritan, but it's almost certain that George Burroughs also sexually abused Mercy Lewis. She was 13 years old at the time. In 1691, at the age of 15, she escaped that life and moved to Salem Village. One of her older sisters lived there. She was already married, into the most prominent family in the area. Mercy Lewis was employed as a maidservant by her sister's father-in-law, Thomas Putnam. That's Anne Putnam's father. The same Thomas Putnam who was involved in a land dispute with Sarah Osborne. The same who was still owed a great deal of money by George Burroughs. In the days that followed Tichuba's confession, Mercy Lewis began to suffer pinches and bites and fits. Three figures tormented her. A witch that she did not know, a witch that she did and a man. When the magistrates and Minister Paris arrived to question her, the Putnam household was bedlam. The girls, Mercy Lewis and Anne Putnam Jr., were crying and screaming and beating their heads against the floor. There was a witch there. As they spoke, tormenting them, couldn't they see her? The adults could not. Paris prayed over them and calmed them down enough to answer questions. Who was the witch that tormented them? Their answer shocked everyone there. It was Martha Corey, a full church member in good standing, a woman renowned for her piety, her love of God. You may remember Martha Corey from last time. She was the woman who chose not to attend the hearings, who tried to stop her husband, Giles Corey, from attending by unsaddling his horse. The men asked the girls to describe the clothes that Martha Corey wore, but they could not. The witch, they said, had blinded them, but she promised to return at nightfall with horrors beyond anything they had experienced thus far. They asked the girls also about the man in Mercy Lewis's accusation. That man was familiar, but shrouded in shadow. Mercy Lewis didn't know who it was. 
He did, though, spirit her off to a faraway mountain where he promised her gold and power and a city to rule. All she had to do was to sign her name in a leather-bound book that he carried. That book is important. Similar books played a role in prior witch trials, but this book was going to become a major factor in Salem. However, Tituba, their ringer in this whole affair, never mentioned the book. So the magistrates paid Tituba a visit. She had been offered a book, but of course, she didn't know how to write. And what of the man, they asked her. Well, it turns out that Mercy Lewis's tormentor matched Tituba's recollection perfectly. Of Martha Corey, though, Tituba couldn't say. At least, she had no evidence of Martha Corey being a witch. So the men did not immediately assume that this accusation was accurate. On the 21st of March, John Hawthorne and John Corwin rode out to Martha Corey's farm. They were greeted with all the warmth and hospitality in the world. Corey was 72 years old, and she invited them in. They sat down. They shared a cup of tea. But her opening remarks were a mistake. Martha Corey said, quote, I know what you are come for. You are come to talk with me about being a witch. Hawthorne was taken aback. He asked her to repeat herself. She told the men she was not a witch. I cannot help people talking of me, she said. They told her about Anne Putnam's accusation. And Corey asked, but does she tell you what clothes I have on? But Hawthorne counted that Corey blinded her and told her that she should see you no more before it was night, that she might not tell us what clothes you had on. But still Martha Corey was unfazed. She was a pious woman, a devout woman. In her own words, a gospel woman. She promised to, quote, open the eyes of the magistrates and ministers. The men left her there at home. She was still free, but... The magistrates had already decided to collect an arrest warrant for the woman they were now convinced was a witch. Two days later, Martha Corey rode out to the Putnam farm. She wanted to put all of this business to bed. Thomas Putnam and his wife and his daughter, Anne Putnam Jr., were all there. But upon crossing the threshold, Anne Putnam crumpled. Martha Corey was a straight-backed 72-year-old woman standing in the parlor of the prosperous Putnam farmhouse. But as she removed her cloak, a 12-year-old girl who had accused her of witchcraft dropped to the floor. The girl screamed and contorted and thrashed and cried. The adults were just left standing there, dumbfounded, staring at the scene unfolding before them. As she rolled around on the floor, Anne Putnam began to narrate a scene. A scene that was happening as they live and breathe in this very room, but that only she could see. Martha Corey had a little yellow bird perched upon her fingers. Could they not see it? Corey proffered her hands. She moved in to show the girl that they were empty, but that only elicited yet greater cries and screams. Now look, there is a man impaled on a spit, and before the spit, turning him over the fire, is Goody Corey. Meanwhile, the adults saw no spit. They stood there stock still. And then, bursting into the room, and everyone could see this, was Mercy Lewis wielding a fireplace poker. She said she would thrash Martha Corey to chase her from this home. And she did. But not the real Martha Corey. The real Martha Corey was just standing there. Meanwhile, Mercy Lewis dueled with an apparition that only the girls could see. Anne, writhing on the floor, screamed, Do not do it! Not if you love yourself! But Mercy nonetheless struck at this spectral witch. But she missed. Mercy Lewis missed, and she dropped her weapon, fell to the floor, and screamed in agony. Anne illuminated the adults in the room. She has struck Mercy Lewis with an iron rod! Now... This is a good place to point out that we have almost no words that the girls actually spoke. Anne Putnam, probably, did not call Mercy Lewis, Mercy Lewis. Mercy was there writhing on the floor. Everybody knew who she was talking about. But the old white men that wrote all this down did write Mercy Lewis's full name to make the passage clearer for their reading audience. There's 
a lot of that. And of girls using the kind of formal language that was popular in writing at the time, but that no teenage girl has ever used. You know, she is a most grievous and contemptible witch, that kind of thing. This grievous and contemptible witch was currently beating Mercy Lewis, in spectral form, within an inch of her life. While everyone else in the room, besides the two girls writhing on the floor, just kind of stood there. It was Thomas Putnam that came to grips with the situation first. He screamed at Martha, the real Martha Corey, for beating his maidservant and tormenting his daughter before his very eyes. He chased her out, and that very afternoon, a warrant was issued for goodwife Martha Corey. At the very time that all of this was going on, a familiar face arrived in Salem Village. Deodat Lawson was yet another former minister of Salem. His tenure ended, as you might expect, due to a lack of pay, in 1688. Samuel Paris was the man who replaced Deodat Lawson. But here in 1692, Samuel Paris invited Lawson to come visit Salem. Paris had far too much on his plate between the investigations and the girls in his household to minister properly. Deodat Lawson got a room at Ingersoll's Ordinary. Everyone there was happy to see him. They wanted to catch up with their old minister. But first Lawson had to drop off his bags and freshen up up in his room. As he did so, in his shirt sleeves, a young woman in town named Mary Walcott invited herself in. Mary Walcott was the niece of Mary Sibley. You may remember her as the witch cake enthusiast. At sixteen, Mary Walcott was not yet old enough to marry by Puritan standards, but she was old enough to be thinking about marriage. On an entirely unrelated note, Cotton Mather once complained of the horde of young women that called at his house mere weeks after his wife died, all of them bringing him treats to, you know, console him. Pastors were quite the catch in Puritan New England. You know, assuming they got paid, they were usually promised a good wage in a decent house, and in some cases were considered almost the only American nobility. Deodat Lawson had only recently lost his wife, reportedly due to the machinations of malevolent witches. Now, he would have remembered Mary Walcott from his time as a minister, but he would have remembered her as a twelve-year-old. And yet here she was, in his chambers, blossoming into womanhood, recalling just how moved she had been by his sermons. It was so good to have him back. Minister Paris just couldn't compare. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Lawson knew the deal here. He was polite about it, but he chased Mary Walcott off. They could catch up downstairs. But as she turned to leave, a squeak. Mary Walcott rubbed her leg. She'd been bitten. Lawson investigated the scene of the crime and found that she did indeed have a bite mark. Human teeth had recently sunk into her flesh. With that, Deodat Lawson was intrigued. Deodat Lawson was going to be involved in everything, in all the investigations that were to come. Indeed, he would keep better records than the magistrates themselves or the court recorders. But the following day was Sunday, and Deodat Lawson had a sermon to give. 
It would be his first in Salem Village in four years. Now Lawson knew that Martha Corey, a woman to whom he'd ministered for years, had been accused of witchcraft. And Martha Corey showed up to church. She would have been arrested that same day, but it was the Sabbath. Have you ever sat next to a witch in church? And I don't mean, you know, taking mushrooms in the woods, and this is my church, man. No, I mean sitting in the pews Sunday morning next to a woman who has had Congress with the Beast. It was a tense day there at the meeting house. Stacy Schiff writes, quote, Lawson began the service to be interrupted by writhing girls. Pastors were accustomed to preaching past disturbances through the stamping of feet on the wood floor, the chirps of the birds in the rafters, the wails of infants, the dog that vomited or congregant who fainted dead away. The convulsions stopped Lawson cold, however. Normality returned with the singing of the psalm, after which he prepared to rise from his pulpit seat for the sermon. A voice rang out in the stillness, Now stand up and name your text, commanded Abigail Williams. Some minutes into Lawson's discourse, a second voice rang out. Now there is enough of that, announced Bashua Pope, a forty-year-old matron newly afflicted. From the front of the rough-hewn meeting-house, Paris's niece sounded the same note, after Lawson obliged her by naming his text. It is a long text, carped Abigail. She behaved no better that afternoon. From the pulpit, Lawson announced his doctrine for the day, I know no doctrine you had, she countered. If you did name it, I have forgot it. She went on to disrupt that sermon, too, pointing to an astounding sight. All eyes must already have scuttled and darted in Martha Corey's direction. Abigail redirected the congregant's attention skyward. Look where good wife Corey sits on the beam, cried the eleven-year-old, gesturing to the rafters, suckling her yellow bird between her fingers. End quote. It was a hard day for Martha Corey. But not as hard as the next day would be. Come morning, she found herself back in the meeting house, this time in chains. Everyone in town was there. Well, almost everyone in town was there. There were a few old, sick women who chose not to attend the hearing, which, I'm sure in the current climate, wouldn't backfire. The magistrates laid out the evidence before everyone, including Martha Corey. The accusers, uh, Abigail Williams, Ann Putnam, Betty Paris, Elizabeth Hubbard, and Mercy Lewis, were their smoking gun. Five more women and girls joined them in accusing Goodwife Corey, but those were the nucleus. Beyond that, there was the damning interview that they had taken a few days past. They asked Martha Corey why she thought to ask them about her clothing. She said that it was because her husband, who, recall, had been at all the previous hearings, had told her about the girls reporting on witches' clothing. Sensible enough, but Giles Corey testified that he had not. Hawthorne asked her, Did you not say your husband told you so? But before she could even begin to answer, he warned her, I expect the truth. You promised it. Martha Corey, 72 years old, was forced to stand there in chains while Hawthorne barked out accusations at her without the ability to get a word in edgewise. She did occasionally try to defend herself, but every time she spoke up, she was cut short by court officials who made it very clear they expected her to confess. She said to them, So I would if I were guilty, but Hawthorne responded, Tell me the truth! Why did you say the magistrate's eyes were blinded and you would open them? You say we are blind? If you say I am a witch, she told them. And then, on the very few occasions she was actually given the opportunity to speak up, she was interrupted by the girls. Abigail Williams spat out, She is no gospel woman, she is a gospel witch! Ann Putnam Jr. informed everyone assembled that there was a man standing next to goodwife Corey whispering into her ear. At this, because it was obviously true, Hawthorne erupted, What did he say to you? Martha Corey suggested, quote, We must not believe all that these distracted children say. Good advice. But advice that the court completely ignored. The performance that the girls put on at goodwife Corey's hearing was 
much better than it had been at the earlier hearings. Much more subtle, nuanced, and believable. At one point, Martha Corey bit her lip in frustration. On cue, bite marks blossomed on some of the girls. If Martha Corey shifted her weight or leaned against the bar, and she was up there for several hours, but if she moved at all, the girls were thrown to the ground in the direction that goodwife Corey had moved. At one point, Corey gestured with her hands, and Mercy Lewis produced a pin from deep within her flesh. A pin that certainly had been placed by Martha Corey before their very eyes. The effect of this was that every eye in the court was glued to Martha Corey, watching her more and more closely for any sign of witchcraft. There's a pattern that I've noticed here in the witch trials, a pattern that I think is worth noting here. It was the older girls that tended to do more of the rolling around on the floor, more of the writhing and thrashing their arms and legs about, and occasionally showing an indecent amount of skin. By, you know, Puritan standards. But it was the younger girls that, while all of this rolling and writhing was going on, while this spectacle was unfolding, those younger girls tended to be those who produced bites and pins and the like. Later on in the trials, there would be women present who would notice the girls bite each other or pull pins out of their hair. For some reason, while the older girls were squirming around on the floor, writhing and thrusting and showing off a shocking amount of skin, well, the men in the court just never seemed to have noticed the girls in the background pulling pins out of their hair. This was all an effective bit of stage management. And here, in March 1692, it did its part to condemn the 72-year-old Martha Corey. After hours before the bar, she finally surrendered to her fate. She did not confess. Martha Corey was a straight-up gangster, but she knew she was beaten. She said, You are all against me, and I cannot help it. Like three women before her, Martha Corey was remitted to the Salem Town Jail. In the aftermath of this hearing, a few voices of reason were raised. Deodat Lawson sort of led that charge. He was the best educated man in Salem, village or town. He was among the best educated people in Massachusetts. At one point, he served as a royal physician to Charles II. He called in many a sermon and letters back to Boston for careful inspection, for a search for real evidence beyond the claims of a few teenage girls. At Ingersoll's, a few days later, Mary Warren suffered a fit. She accused her master, John Proctor, of witchcraft, of having bewitched her. Nathaniel Ingersoll himself shouted her down. His wife took off her slipper and beat Mary Warren. The girl relented. She confessed that it was all a lie. It was a story she made up. She even said that the other girls were making up stories. It was just sport. We must have our sport, she told them. There was a fair bit of this going around. The tide almost turned against the trials. But 25 miles away, in Boston, Cotton Mather turned it back. He gave a fire-and-brimstone sermon because of the witch trials. And that's not a figure of speech in this case, he told the congregants that fire and brimstone was actually about to fall from the skies. In his esteemed estimation, and his was among the most esteemed in Massachusetts, the end of days was upon them. Witches were only the beginning. They were a harbinger of what was to come. The devil walked Massachusetts. The end was very nigh. Thanks in large part to this sermon, the government was about to get involved. Reports and transcripts of that sermon made their way to Salem Town and Salem Village, who got fired up all over again. As March turned into April, the pace of trials was going to pick up significantly. Which, you know, that's fortunate for us because we're about two weeks into a nine-month story. The following days saw a number of high-profile events. An elderly great-grandmother, one of those old sick women who chose not to attend, was arrested. 
Rebecca Nurse was questioned just as harshly as Martha Corey, if not more, despite being more than a decade her elder. In the end, she too was thrown in jail. This began to happen a lot. We're not going to go into every last arrest and every last hearing. They're all interesting, but we simply don't have the time. Instead, I'd like to focus on some of the more exciting events. Reports began to file in of a tiny spectral figure. Schiff calls her a pint-sized witch in the form of Dorothy Good, Sarah Good's five-year-old daughter. She was known, according to these accusations, to flit about the village, darting in and out of windows and biting victims in their beds, laughing, flying away into the night. And they all have bite marks to prove it. Which is an excellent example of judicial malfeasance in the witch trials. Schiff writes, quote, Any number of discrepancies had presented themselves. Hawthorne barreled past each and every one. He did not quarantine the girls or question them separately, as every legal manual advised. He made no attempt to match teeth marks to dentistry, which would have yielded some surprising results. One of the accused having, noted a contemporary, not a tooth in his head. End quote. That contemporary might have pointed this fact out, much as many of the women would go on to point out that the girls had bitten each other or produced pins from their hair, but pointing out facts was quickly becoming a dangerous activity, if those facts went against the established narrative, that is. There were untold witches in Salem, as well as Lucifer himself getting ready for Judgment Day. Pointing out the discrepancies in the stories could land you before the court as a witch yourself. Hawthorne had the bit in his teeth at this point. He believed all of those who accused a five-year-old girl of witchcraft. He forced a confession out of her, and he threw her in the cells of the Salem Town Jail, not, it should be noted, next to her mother. Whenever Dorothy Good was seen in public in the months to come, taken to or from jail, she was seen dragging around chains that weighed almost, if not more, than she did. Other nocturnal activities, though, were also taking place. As the scope of the menace grew, witches were known to hold great gatherings in empty fields. No one but that cadre of girls ever seems to have actually seen a black mass, but their word was more and more accepted as law. The witches flew in on broomsticks. At first it was just a few, then a few more, then dozens, then hundreds from all around New England. Upon making landfall, they would take sacrament red wine, and red bread. And they would all read from and write in the devil's book. And every time that Satan himself proffered the book to one of the girls, they would happen to notice another name they hadn't seen before, writ in blood. Another name that would be dutifully arrested, dragged before the court, and hauled off to jail. The accusations were not limited to this cadre of young women and girls. Older women, adult women, respectable matrons got in on the fun, and finally, men began to make accusations. Now, the tales that the men had were different. They were less often seduced to sign the devil's book, and more often just seduced. A number of men came forward with allegations that one or another of the local women had appeared in his bedroom in the dead of night and, with preternatural strength, choked him, held him down, and forced him into Congress. While the men were suffering these nighttime trysts, the girls at the center of this entire conflagration found that they could use their newfound power for a bit of their own amusement. Benjamin Hutchinson was a handsome young man of 17 or 18 years. He was the adopted son of Nathaniel Ingersoll and set to inherit his inn. Everyone knew Benjamin Hutchinson. Everyone liked Benjamin Hutchinson. He was a personable fellow. The girls especially liked him. On the morning of the 21st of April, Hutchinson was walking through town with a pitchfork in hand when Anne Putnam Jr. ran up. She informed Benjamin that there was a sinister little man sitting by the side of the road. Anne had a litany of murders and petty crimes of which this fiend was guilty, but she also noted his strength. 
He had, she told him at one time, fired a huge musket, one-handed. Hutchinson, in what I have to assume was a most dashing form, launched his pitchfork at exactly the spot to which Anne pointed. To the delight of the younger girl, he hit the vile little man. Again, Stacy Schiff, which, really, just go by the book, it's a fantastic read. She writes, quote, Shortly before four o'clock, Abigail again sought out Hutchinson at the tavern, this time arriving with his cousin, Mary Walcott. They were just able to report that a Topsfield woman had bitten Mary before both girls began to shudder. As they calmed, they pointed to a table. The witch's husband stood upon it. Hutchinson plunged his rapier into what he understood to be their tormentor's side. He withdrew it to learn that the room swarmed with spirits, an Indian and a great black woman among them. Wildly, Hutchinson and a friend struck left and right, directed by the bewitched who described the carnage for their defenders. They now lived in a world where, when a girl pointed to a notional figure, you assumed she was right, and you were blind. The sanded floor was slick with blood. On the hill outside, the girls spotted a coven of witches, three of them dead. End quote. That very night, warrants were issued for any of the witches that the girls had recognized in this barroom battle. There is a lot that we're rushing by, with barely a glance here. The number of accusers exploded in early April. But that nucleus of girls had, well, they were still the focal point. By this point, they were seen to have almost supernatural powers themselves. And the number of accused in New England had grown in proportion, beyond just the bounds of Salem Village to Salem Town to Topsfield, which was mentioned there. It shared a border with Salem Village and a lot of territory with the Putnam family, but also to Boston and beyond. Almost nobody, with the exception of one man, a vagrant from out of town that the girls could not pick out of a lineup, everyone else was remitted to a jail either in Salem Town or in Salem Village, one of the inns was converted, or eventually to Boston. In March, six women were accused. In April, 54 people were accused, 53 sent to jail. If I had the time, I would love to tell you the tale of Anne Hobbs. She was one of those wounded in the barroom fight. All of their stories, Anne Hobbs and everyone else, well, they're all fascinating. They're all heart-wrenching in their own way. More important than the individuals arrested is the terror that began to grip Salem Village and Salem Town, that began to grip Massachusetts, People began to genuinely believe that they were under siege by Satan himself who walked their midst. Which brings me to the accused that I would like to end on today. Near the end of April, after a month of furious accusations, at about the same time that Anne Putnam Jr. was enjoying the pantomime at Ingersoll's, Thomas Putnam, her father, pinned a letter to the magistrates. He told the court of something that he had uncovered from the stories of the girls that they were too afraid to come forward with. Of a sinister conspiracy, larger than anyone had yet suspected. It stretched far beyond their little corner of New England, all the way to Boston and beyond. Putnam did not name names. He said he did not have names to name. Only the girls could answer that mystery. But he told the court of a malevolent mastermind behind all of it. This man, he claimed, was a dark wizard. He was not the tall, white-haired Boston man of Tituba's testimony. He was instead a short, dark-haired man from Maine. He was the figure that forced Tituba to torment the girls at the Paris household, the same who pressed his book into the hands of Anne Putnam and Mary Walcott and Elizabeth Hubbard. He was the dark figure that flew Mercy Lewis to the mountaintop and promised her kingdoms to rule, among many other affronts done her. This wizard presided over the Black Mass. He gave out sacrament of red wine and red bread, an activity with which he would have been quite comfortable. As, after all, he was a minister, 
In several bouts of tearful testimony, all of the girls were present, but they were led by Mercy Lewis and Anne Putnam. John Hawthorne extracted the name of this darkest figure in all of New England, so evil that these girls feared to even speak his name. Mercy Lewis confessed that this dark wizard was George Burroughs. And of course, Mercy Lewis had particularly damning information concerning years of abuse at his hands. Not just the abuse done to herself, but also of his daughters and wives, four of which, two wives and two daughters, had mysteriously gone missing on the main frontier. While Mercy Lewis lost every person in her family somehow, this dark wizard, clearly in conspiracy with the satanic Wabanaki people, had survived. It was in the wake of this testimony that men who had lived on the main frontier gave their own of feats of strength done by this puny little dark-haired devil. On the 30th of April, 1692, a party of Salem militiamen were dispatched to Maine with a warrant for the arrest of George Burroughs. Next time, we will discuss the trial of this dark wizard. We'll also talk about the arrival on the scene of the deputy governor and representatives from the government in Boston. We'll talk about the first witches to climb the gallows and everything else we can cram in as we bring to a close the story of the Salem Witch Trials. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews or recommended this show. You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at Pirate History Podcast. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. And happy Halloween. Tonight